Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We are a warm and vibrant gospel-centered church with campuses in the Philadelphia region, passionate about the gospel, community, and discipleship. If you'd like to learn more about joining our community or would like to give to our ministry, please visit us at metrophilly.org. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. You can also follow along in page 8 in your bulletin. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are uh, in Cherry Hills, well, I don't know if you know, we're, trying to t- we're testing out some technology today uh, just to ensure that we can simulcast whenever we need to. Every once in a while, we try to rule out something that allows us to be able to be more flexible in our ability to share and, and, and teach and, uh, and worship together as a body spread out over multiple campuses, multiple time frames. Uh, we're rolling out uh, and launching the opportunity or the availability of uh, some simulcast technology today. So uh, for those of you who are in Cherry Hill as well, uh, we're grateful to be able to worship with you all together here as, as, a, as a church. Now, uh, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at what the Bible says about our relationship with money. And today's passage is a pretty famous story. It's where Jesus says that famous phrase, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, this passage in Mark, it's sandwiched. It takes place between two experiences. Jesus' experience on two different mountains, so to speak. The first We see, if you've ever been in the church, you understand this phrase, Jesus was transfigured. He experiences a transfiguration on one mountain. That happens just one chapter prior here in Mark chapter 9. And then we have the other mountain. We have the crucifixion on Calvary. And sandwiched between these two incredible experiences on two different mountains is a series of three pivotal teachings where Jesus addresses marriage, children, and of course this passage, the last of the three teachings, it's about our money. Jesus is uh, with his disciples, and he's teaching us three things. That means if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you need to know these three things. One, the intoxicating power of money. Two, why it has that power. 
Lastly, well, how are we going to be free from that power? The power of money, why it has that power, how we can be free uh, from that power. First, we're going to look at the power of money. Money has this intoxicating power on our souls. It shapes our judgment. It alters our understanding, our view of reality. Verse 17, you've got this man. He's a good man. He's an obedient person. He wants to serve God. Matthew's gospel speaks of him as a young person. Luke's gospel calls him a ruler, so he's a type of king. And here in verse 22, we learn that he has great wealth. So he's literally a rich, young ruler. And he approaches Jesus, and he calls Jesus good teacher. And Jesus, in verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? This is a ruler. I mean, this is a king. And yet even he looks to Jesus and he says, you are good, meaning you are righteous. I look at you and you are acceptable. This is a worthy person. This man is the standard. That's what he's saying. I mean, he must have seen Jesus. He must have heard about Jesus. He must have sat and heard from Jesus and his teachings enough at least to say, you, and based on my assessment, you are the standard of what is good. And he also wants to be good. So he says in verse 20, I've obeyed. I've kept the law. I've kept the commandments. Why? Why does he do that? Now think about this. If you want to be excellent in your career, there's nothing like the affirmation of the person who is in the highest position uh, in your institution or in your organization. But this man is seeking the approval of Jesus. He is the standard of good. He is the standard of righteousness. He wants the approval of someone greater than a director or a CEO. This is God. And he wants to know if he's okay. And so he asks, what more must I do? What do I need to do to be good? I mean, he thinks he's pretty good already, clearly in this passage, but I obey, he says. But how can I be better? How can I improve? Look at the zeal of the rich young ruler. I mean, uh, he enters in on his knees, but by the end of this passage, he gets up and he walks away from Jesus sadly. He walks away upright on his own two feet because of his wealth. That's what it says. And so friends, I mean, why is this passage in the Bible? We need to know it. Uh, It's because some of you, uh, you're gonna do that too. Some of you right now are coming in and you're saying, hey, I want to serve, I want to I know Jesus, and you're fired up. But some of you are going to walk away too. Some of you are walking away right now. And it's because of your wealth. It's because of your titles, what you own. You're wealthy, or you're gaining wealth. You're young, and you think you're a king. That's why you need to pay attention. What's this passage saying? Sometimes, you know, <clears throat> as an aside, Uh, the more you get to know the God of the Bible, uh, he says certain things. He says hard things, disturbing things, things that you disagree with, things that you don't want to accept, things that uh, you want to dismiss about God or about yourself or about your life. But think about this. A God that always agrees with you, a God that never challenges you, a God that that never argues with you, a God that, that kind of God can never shape you. Because that kind of God is merely a product of your own desires, And so that kind of God would never have the power to change you. Only a God that argues with you, disturbs you, upsets you because he goes against your view of him or your view of yourself or your view of your worldview, your view of life. That's the only kind of God that's actually able to change you. That's the only kind of God that can save you because Jesus is good. 
he's perfect, because he's a standard, then his view of the world, his view of you, that's an objective view. He is the perfect judge. You see, we have a, we have a subjective view of ourselves, but not Jesus. Because Jesus is the standard, he is the measure, because he is holy, he is the only one who actually has the power to truly validate or invalidate someone. Now, when you start arguing with Jesus then, when you start arguing with the God of the Bible, what's happening here? Don't be too discouraged. I mean, what happens anytime you get into any relationship, you start to really get what that person's about and their values start to clash with your values. Don't be discouraged, don't be too frustrated. You're, trying to, you're starting to let go of your pretenses. You're developing a deeper relationship with God. Pursue that. How personal do you want to get with Jesus? How personal do you want to get with God? Because God, he is the king, not just a king. He is the king of the universe. And he wants to get into your ambitions. And he wants to get into your relationships. And he wants to get into your sex life. And he wants to get into your wallet. He wants to get into your bank account. He wants to get into your anger issues and your traumas. You see that? This rich young ruler, he has no idea what he's coming across. He's coming to Jesus as the standard, but he calls him a teacher. You see, a teacher, you're not required to follow your teacher. You've got some options when you go to a teacher. You can take what he says or leave what he says. Is that what you're doing? What about you? Are you coming to Jesus as, as just a teacher, a good teacher? Maybe the standard, but hey, I want to just improve my life. I'm just coming so that you can supplement my life. Or are you coming to him as king, as God? Are you coming to Jesus just to improve your position in life? Or are you coming to Jesus to get a whole new life? Verse 17, the rich young ruler uh, the rich young lawyer, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is kind of interesting because the whole point of an inheritance is that you do nothing to earn it. But he goes to Jesus and he says, what must you do to inherit eternal life? He just wants to improve his position. He just wants to improve or supplement his life. And notice, the author conveniently leaves out his name. He's saying, what is he saying? You don't need to know about him. You don't need to know him. Not personally. Why? Because maybe back then he was a somebody. But ultimately, he's unknown. He's a nobody. He's just a rich man. That's his identity. That's where he placed all of his marbles. That's where he placed all of his bets. The author is trying to make a point that, well, you could spend decades being around people who know Jesus. You can spend decades studying Jesus, even obeying Jesus, and not have a real relationship with Jesus. Well, then who cares who you are or what you do or what you have, what you own? You're a no-name. Doug Ponder, he's a professor at Grimke Seminary. He uh, references Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is an American scholar based out of uh, North Carolina uh, today at least. Uh, and uh, Doug Ponder, he's talking about what we call the hypocrisy gap. I'm going to read you at least something from Kevin uh, DeYoung. Uh, with respect to the hypocrisy gap. Many Christians fear that doing the right thing without the right feelings makes them hypocrites. But is this really hypocrisy? Another word to describe this behavior might be maturity. Children only do what they feel like doing. 
Adults learn to do things they are supposed to do, though they may not always be excited about it. Later on, he says in his article, hypocrisy is not the gap between doing and feeling. It's the gap between public persona and private character. Then you go a little bit further down, and he says, the hypocrite is not the Christian who struggles against sin, who fights against temptation, and keeps doing what is right, even on his worst feeling days. That is a hero. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. And he starts to conclude here. He says the sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's true for all of us. The sin is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. That's the rich young ruler. He's a good man on the outside. He's a good man, a good guy. But who cares? Who cares? Because in Christ's kingdom, he's a nobody. Unimportant. No name. Do you have a name? What do we do to fill that Gap between public persona and private character. Here's the problem. Verse 19, Jesus says, obey the Ten Commandments. What must I do? Jesus says, obey the commandments. And verse 20, the man says, oh, I knew you'd say that. I did all that. Ever since I was a young boy, I've been doing this. In other words, I'm a good person. Jesus, I'm a good person. Do I meet your standard? I mean, what else do I need to do? You've got to tell me. The only way we're ever going to fill that gap that hypocrisy gap, is through repentance. That is a deep surrender of your life to Jesus. But what we tend to do is we tend to try to fill that gap with more knowledge, with more friends in the church, you see? With more doing in the church. That's the problem with a rich young ruler. And you know what that does? Instead of decreasing the gap, it actually increases the gap. I mean, you think you're here because you're good and you've been around for a while and you're, you, you may be around people who are alive, but in actuality, you are here. You are maybe subterranean, dead. What does Jesus say in verse 21? There's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me and there it is. You're gonna fill that gap with what? Surrender. Follow me. That's a disciple, one who gives up everything and follows Jesus, essentially. And the man couldn't. Why not? Verse 22, he had great wealth. In other words, just the thought. Here Jesus is presenting him a case study of somebody who is truly being renewed in him and is following him as a disciple. And he says, what I want you to do is think about all the things, your 401ks, your retirement portfolios, all of your real estate investments, all of your, all of your investment vehicles. I want, you to, I want you to give it all up. And just the thought of giving all those things up, just the thought of losing all of his wealth, it was just too much. It depressed him. Verse 22, it says he went away sad. You need to know the Greek word for sad here is he was under distress and shock. It completely blew him up to think that he would have to give all this that made up who he thought he was. What about you? Is that why some of you are so tight-fisted? Is that why we're so tight-fisted and stingy? In front of our friends, forget about the church. I mean, the church is always, the church tends to get the scraps 
How about towards one another? How about towards your community or your families or the people who are in need that you see where you are a neighbor to? Is that you? What is greed? The Bible says anything that you value apart from God, you're going to protect that thing. You're going to treasure that thing. It's what you behold that shapes your values and, and your view of yourself and your view of your identity. And look, we become that, what we, that which we behold. So when you behold wealth, that's the thing you look to. There's this passage in Genesis uh, chapter uh, chapter, uh, I want to say 11-ish, uh, Genesis chapter 13. You see, Genesis chapter 13, you have Lot, who's getting very wealthy, and Abram, who's very wealthy, and their people start, because they're running out of space for their, for their livestock, and so they start to bicker, and they're fighting. And so Abram tells Lot, you can make the choice to, you know, it's very, very uh, otherworldly to be for an older person to tell a younger person, you can have first dibs to go the direction you want to go and, and choose the land that you want to be in. And it says that Lot looked out, and what he saw was the garden of the Lord. He beheld this land. You know what that land was? It was Sodom. He beheld this land as if it was the garden of the Lord. That is, you go all the way back to the Genesis chapter 1, uh, and man was created. Adam and Eve were created. They resided in the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden. You see, that's what he saw. Here's this rich man, he, I mean, he's valuing something so far apart from God, it, it basically shapes him. That's what he beheld. And when you have wealth, then it's going to make you proud. Or when you don't have wealth, it's going to make you just feel like a loser. Whether you have it or not, you're going to work for it. Because you're going to protect it. You're going to treasure it. You're going to want to nurture it. You're going to care for this thing. So you're going to work for it and work for it to get it, to maintain it. You are a slave, you see. For this man, just the idea of losing his wealth, it, made, it just brought him into utter shock and grieving. And Jesus is challenging us here. I want you to imagine your life without all those investment vehicles. And where all you have left, he says, give it all up to the poor. And what you have left is me. Follow me. Give everything else away. Follow me. The rich young ruler, he walked away sad. It was like this life-threatening event for him. He was despondent. It ruined him. It was his greatest nightmare to lose his wealth. And so what does that teach us? Wealth has such a power over us. It in, it's intoxicating. It intoxicates us. When you're intoxicated by something, it alters your judgment because it actually captivates your mind. It owns you. It takes place, uh, the place of your visible reality. What's real gets altered by this thing. Now think about the reasons why we would be greedy. Greed promises identity. Greed promises security. Our greed promises freedom and healing. You know, retail therapy, right? Healing there. Uh, grief, greed uh, makes you believe that you can be whole, that you can be healed. If you go all the way back to the, to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, back to the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden, we had ultimate identity and ultimate security and ultimate freedom. We were ultimately whole, but then we chose to disobey God. And we thought that we could increase our identity and security and freedom and wholeness apart from God when we're actually decreasing our identity and security and freedom and wholeness. And ever since then, we've been out of the garden. 
And we've been trying to find our way back into the garden on our own, apart from God, and we bought into the lie that our wealth can get us there. That's the issue. That's the intoxicating power of wealth. When you're intoxicated, you're under the power of it, you see? Uh, but all the while, you think you're okay. You say you're okay. Money has this way, this power to shape what you believe. Now you feel like you have control. Now you feel like you're safe when you're not. And here's the thing, we know deep inside that we're not safe or that we're not in control. This man, he approaches Jesus, verse 17, you go all the way back to the beginning. And he says, what can I do? Verse 20, he says, all these commandments I've kept, I've done these things. In other words, I've passed every test. I'm worthy. I got there on my own. And yet, then why does he need to go to the good teacher? It's because he needs to make sure deep inside because we've lost ourselves. We lost that ultimate security and intimacy and sense of worth and wholeness in the Garden of Eden ever since when we, when we were at one point one in union with the Lord and, and we've been pushed out of the garden because of our sin. We chose to disobey God. Now there's this deep-rooted insecurity and doubt and we're working now for approval. We're working for somebody to validate us for some of us, it's not even about the money. It's about the validation. For some of us, it's, it's a parent. It's a mom or a dad. We need their approval still, even now as adults. For some of us, it's the peers. We need the approval of our peers. We need people to say, you've made it. You're, you've arrived, you see? There's this deep-rooted insecurity, and you're never going to get that validation we, that we lost in the garden we're never going to get the validation that we need. And so, but we often think, if I just work hard enough, if I just make enough, then it's going to afford me certain things, and people are going to say, he's the standard. She's arrived. I'm okay. And you think you can get rid of that insecurity and that doubt, and you can't. Jesus, in verse 21, he says, there's one thing you lack He's saying we still lack something. Give it all up. If you want it, give it all up. Follow me. And he couldn't. The power of that wealth was too intoxicating. It was too strong. He walked away distressed. Now secondly, why? Why does it have that power? Verse 23, Jesus says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24 and 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, Jesus is questioning whether or not this rich man gets in. But notice the disciples, I mean, they were poor. They don't respond saying, absolutely, definitely, this guy's so arrogant, I couldn't stand being around him because of his wealth. He's just exuding arrogance. They didn't say that. Notice, why not? And the answer is probably because he's not a typical rich man. Man goes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? Verse 19, Jesus responds with the commandments, particularly the commandments that have to do with your relationship with other people. And so he says, well, you know, you have to, you can, don't, don't, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not defraud people. In other words, do not lie. Honor your father and mother. These are all commandments to deal with in your relationships with other people. And the man says, I've kept all of these things. 
I've kept all these things ever since I was a boy. In other words, I've always been good to people. I've always treated people with honor and respect. And so in verse 23, when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, notice in verse 24, the disciples, they were amazed. They were surprised that he was saying this. In verse 25, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, friends, come on. You don't have to look into the theological reason for the camel and the needle and all this stuff. He's just saying it's hard. It's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the, in verse 26, the disciples say they're even more amazed. Why? It's not because the man wasn't good enough. It's because that man was so good. He was too good. I mean, the man must have had a rep reputation as an honorable, respectable king. Oh, and he must have worked hard, and he was an honest person who built an honest living, an honest wealth. So when he says, I've kept all these commandments, notice the disciples, it doesn't say, well, they start rolling their eyes and scoffing and kind of snickering and mocking him. They didn't do that. You know what they said? I mean, they didn't say, oh, he's such an arrogant person. Afterwards, Jesus, I'm so glad you said that because he's so annoying. They didn't say that. You see? You know why? I mean, he must have been humble. He must have had outstanding character. In fact, in verse 25, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, verse 26, the disciples respond, well, then who can be saved? They're saying, if he can't get in, who can? He was so good, it made even the disciples doubt themselves. But let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that the simple fact of being wealthy is what condemns you. It's rather being held in its power. What it does to you. How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the avenue. I'm Friends, I looked at a lot of commentaries. Can somebody please tell me what that means? Scholars struggle to understand it. Some of them focus on the camel. Some of them focus on the needle. Whenever you see that, it just means it's unclear. But you get that this is a metaphor, right? They all agree on that. What they're saying is if money has a grip on your life the way it did for the rich young ruler, then it's impossible for you to know God and enter into his kingdom. Unless, verse 27, unless God himself gets involved. The disciples ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. That means there's hope. It's possible for you who have money to still get in, to still know God, to develop an intimate relationship with him See, if we're honest, we know that our money, our wealth is so intoxicating. It's got such a strong grip on all of our lives that it would take God himself to intervene, to step in, to wake us up. So this passage is supposed to be an awakening for you. It's supposed to be an awakening for us. How can we be free? That's the third point from the grip of money. A lot of people here like the rich young ruler, right? If you're honest, you say, hey, I'm a good person. I obey. 
And I've got some money in my pocket, sure. People admire me, they respect me for my education, where I've arrived, how far I've gotten so far. And I've got some strengths, I get it. I've got some skills. In your world, you've probably done a lot. You may be pretty accomplished. And, and money is intoxicating because, because you're a decent person. Maybe you grew up in the church uh, and you're a good person. No one here wants to be or aspiring to be a scoundrel, I suppose. And because you're successful and you've got some wealth and you're respected, but you're also a decent person, you think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not all that bad. That's the intoxication. You don't see your real need. And so you don't go to Jesus with empty hands. You've got full hands. That's what it means, by the way, to be tight-fisted. And the church, Jesus, is just a thing you do to keep Jesus at bay, believe it or not. Jesus says, obey the commandments. You say, obey, I'm doing that. I did it. I'm part of a community. I'm serving. I've got some gifts that I'm I'm really using for the church. I'm worshiping. But don't you dare come to me into my private world and tell me how to live my life. Don't you dare come to me for my money. Now think about this. Why would we surrender anything to Jesus and let go of the things that got us where we are in the first place if that's what you're relying on? You see, unless where you want to be is with him. Give this stuff up? No way. Not what matters to me. Not my wealth. How does Jesus respond? I mean, he could have said, come again. You obeyed since you were a boy. You couldn't obey this morning. I know you. He could have said that. But he doesn't say that. Look at the patience of Jesus. We're not that patient. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. We're not that gentle. I'm not that gentle. What does the text say that he did? Verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. That's his love. That's his compassion. Why was he so compassionate? I mean, to the Pharisees, who were good at obedience. That was their thing. They were teachers of the law. They were teachers of obedience. But Jesus was often the harshest with the Pharisees. But here, with the rich young ruler, he's so gentle. Why? And it's because he understood. He understands. Think about this. No one would understand more what it's like to be a rich young ruler than Jesus. No one would understand the pain of giving up your wealth more than Jesus. Jesus Christ is the ultimate rich young ruler who emptied himself and gave everything for people who are poor. That means he gave up his wealth. He gave up his status as a son, the honor of the king, the inheritance of the kingdom, the throne of heaven. I mean, he had it all. He gave it all. Philippians chapter 2 says, the Apostle Paul says, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The rich man says, I have it all, but I want more. I'm not letting any of this go. I want more. What he didn't realize was if you want that more, you've got to let everything else go. That's how you get more. He didn't realize that. And so he's grasping. 
So Jesus is really just a tool, an instrument that would help this man live the life that he wants to live on earth and still get that assurance that he needs for eternity. He's going to God for things, but Philippians chapter two says that Jesus Christ, he was a very different kind of rich young ruler. He made himself nothing and became a servant. And he didn't grasp, he emptied himself of his glory and he obeyed all the way to the cross. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus Christ is at Gethsemane, the garden, a different garden, garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, and before he's arrested, it's the night he's gonna be betrayed, before he was arrested, he was grieving. He was grieving. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. That word distressed is the same Greek word in Matthew 26. It's the same Greek word used to describe that rich young ruler's sadness. He was also distressed and depressed when he walked away from Jesus. The rich young ruler, he was asked to give up everything and give up his life and follow Jesus, and he was distressed. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who is asked to give up everything and to give up his life. And so when Jesus looks at this rich young ruler, he understands the pain and the sadness. He understands, friends, how difficult it is to surrender it all. And Jesus is far richer, far more virtuous. The only man who could ever say that he kept all the commandments ever since he was a boy and he was still young. He was in his prime. And he was a king, the king of the universe, far greater, more powerful king than this other ruler, this young ruler. But in Gethsemane, just the thought, what was he doing in Gethsemane? He says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was staring into the thought of losing everything was now dawning on Jesus at Gethsemane. And he was distressed. He was overwhelmed with sorrow, he says, to the point of death. And then he died on the cross. He gave up far more. God said, go, empty yourself and follow my word all the way. You know where that took him? It took him all the way to the cross. And he did. And so Jesus, from the moment he was born, without status, in humiliation, lived and grew up in poverty, and then in homelessness as an itinerant preacher all over that area, that region, the rich young ruler, he walked away, but it points to the greatest rich young ruler, Jesus Christ, who did not walk away. And he will never walk away. How do you know that? On the cross, Jesus didn't just give up his worldly possessions, his worldly wealth. He didn't have any worldly wealth. But when the king came down, he sacrificed the throne. He left everything behind. And when he cried on the cross then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I've lost my relationship with God, the Father. This is the sum. He is the sum of all of my worth, all of my wealth, the core love of my heart, the supreme love, the center of my being. He defines me, my identity, he is my security, and God has departed away from me. And so the cross becomes the place of ultimate surrender. Losing the Father is the life-ending event in Jesus' life. It ruined him. It is his greatest nightmare come true. The ultimate nightmare come true. The ultimate loss. And yet he still stayed. Until he became cosmically bankrupt. The rich man, he just grieved. Just over the idea of losing everything. But Jesus, he grieved over the certainty of losing everything. 
and not just his worldly treasure, he lost the father, the source, the ultimate wealth. And why? For you. For you, his people. Jesus Christ gave up the love of the Father so we would have the love of the Father. Jesus Christ gave up ultimate security so we would have ultimate security. Jesus Christ gave up the ultimate treasure and status of being the Son of God so that we would have ultimate treasure and status as sons of God, as children of God. You become what you behold. Well, then behold the real rich young ruler, Jesus Christ, who gave up the greatest treasure to make you his treasure. And when you see Jesus emptying himself on the cross for you, when that becomes real to you, personal to you, there is the only validation that you need. There is the righteousness and the approval that you've been seeking all your life. Jesus becomes your wealth. He becomes your treasury, you see? And you hear Jesus saying, you are beautiful. You see that? He is the good teacher, the only one who could ever make that claim, the only person who ever has the right, the authority to validate you. And he says, you are valid, you are approvable, you are acceptable in me. That's what the rich man was trying to earn and he couldn't, but we receive in union with Christ because Jesus lived the life that we should live and then died the death that we should die. And so when the gospel becomes real in your life, when Jesus becomes your treasure, oh, that grip of worldly wealth, it starts to weaken. And when you become free, it changes how you view your money. It changes your relationship with money. It opens up opportunities to give radically because of the grace of God in Jesus radically poured out for you. Do you believe this? Have you given yourself to Jesus? Because he gave himself for you. Trust in him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Metro Church Podcast. If you were encouraged by today's teaching and are looking for a gospel community, we invite you to join us. To learn more, visit metrophilly.org. To give, visit metrophilly.org give.